myself on here. Are we okay now? Thank you. Okay. It's an inward look. That's what, that's what we're told. Isn't that true? That's the message of the day. You know? Realize what you are really worth. Your full potential. Self-esteem is a list of self-words. Find a dictionary sometime. Page after page. Self dash. All kind of words. And that will theoretically, supposedly, bail you out of any uh, disappointing, discouraging, or depressing situation. Now, the problem with that, of course, is it's like trying to secure a drifting ship by dropping the anchor in its own hull. Not going to work, isn't it? Let me tell you, I'll answer the question. The best, in fact, the only true remedy for discouragement and depression or in fact, for fear, worry, you can make a whole list of problems that beset the human soul, is a good look at God and His greatness, His majesty, and His sovereignty. You know that? That's it. A good look at God and His greatness, His sovereignty, and His majesty. God himself administers this remedy consistently throughout the Scripture. Did you know that? To his own people. You think of uh, the prophets. And uh, we're, gonna, we're talking about one right here. John, the apostle, was given many great visions. And we need to remember now, these weren't just words to them. These are visions that they saw that were disturbing. You understand? The things that John is about to see, he didn't feel so good afterwards. We need to remember that. As we read, I told you before, we have a lot of symbolism here. Uh, the one I saw was like. I mean, he, he can't find the words in human language to describe what he saw. To quote a great phrase of Bill, the thoughts here are so heavy that the words are straining under the weight of the thoughts they're trying to carry. And uh, at one point, uh, he's already done it once, John falls down as a dead man. Can you imagine what he felt like at that point? This is disturbing stuff he's going to see. He's already seen some disturbing things. And if you look back uh, throughout the history of God and his dealing with his prophets, for example, Isaiah, think of the great thing, 66 chapters of incredible visions and revelations of the uh, impending judgments that were to come on Isaiah's own people, as well as the people around. They were vivid pictures that he received. And God uh, really started the whole thing, prepared his prophet, if you will, with a great vision of himself there in chapter 6. You know, the vision there. In the, in the uh, year of such and such of the king of Zion, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Remember that? He gave his prophet a vision of himself on the throne to prepare him for what he was about to see and hear and be sent out to do. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Read it sometime. A wonderful vision of God and his greatness. No mention yet of any of the sin in Israel or the sin in the surrounding nations. All you see there is a picture of God and His greatness. It works. Did you know that? You ever tried it? <laughs> it works, doesn't it? In fact, um, we can get uh, down on a real um, individual level with this. The, probably the greatest example of this is Job. Isn't it? I love that book. You know, uh, this is one of the books that's studied in uh, Bible literature classes in colleges, you know. And they miss the whole point every time they look at it. Because it supposedly takes on the, the question of why is there suffering in the world. And to be, and to be honest, it really doesn't answer it, doesn't answer it in the deepest sense. And, but they try to find answers to that question. And that's really not what God is doing there. First of all, let's think, you want to think of somebody that was depressed. huh? You want to think of somebody that was discouraged. Think of a guy that's just lost his whole family in one day. Imagine that. Everything that he owns, it's all gone. And he himself is covered from head to foot. Imagine this with boils. You know? 
Can you get any lower than that? And yet God picks that man up out of the ashes that he was sitting in. And by the end of the book, this man, who is probably the lowest that anybody has ever been taken, is worshiping and praising God. He's probably the happiest man in the world at the end of that book. And do you know what God did to bring him there? Well, you know, if you've read it, all he did was reveal himself. <laughs> he gave Job a great view of his own greatness and sovereignty and majesty. And Job took his eyes off of himself. He didn't look inward for his self-esteem. But God says, look up here at me. And Job looked up. And all of a sudden, the losses and the boils and the suffering and the anxiety and the fear was all gone. And he said great things like, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear before, but now I see you with the seeing of the eye. You are a great God. Isn't that great? Now, there's the true, really only remedy for anything that ails you, spiritual, you or me. And it's no different with John. We have to remember um, that John has already seen a lot that could discourage him, and he's going to see a lot more. Can you imagine what it would be like to have God show you the end of the world? Can you imagine what kind of an experience that would be like? I don't think anybody out of all God's prophets has had such a detailed vision of what it's going to be like and the horrible suffering. A third of the world's population killed in one act. And those aren't just words. John sees this. He sees it. Wouldn't that disturb you? Boy, it would mean. That's just one little verse. And they're not words. They're words in your Bible, but John saw it. And it's, I think it's important that God uses this, if we want to call it, this technique of revealing himself to John, giving John a vision of himself twice. Because he, in a sense, has, uh, how should we say it, two sets of bad news for John. We've already seen one of them. Maybe you haven't noticed it. But this pattern occurs twice. Chapter 1 began with a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? The, the Lord Jesus in his glory and his majesty. What was he preparing John for? Well, chapters 2 and 3. The letters to the churches. And there was a lot of bad news in there, wasn't there? In fact, it ended on a pretty bad note. Remember the church of Laodicea? And if you know the heart of John, he had such a heart for his Lord and for his people. He's the one that wrote that wonderful uh, verse in his um, third epistle, I have no greater joy than this, than, that, than, that my children, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. He said, had such a heart for the churches, for the believers. And his own joy rose and fell on the success and the prosperity of the believers. That's what he was saying there. And to hear personally from the Lord Jesus Christ, his summary of the seven churches that John, by the way, was very familiar with. He probably would have been, you know, one of the key men to travel through and, and uh, visit and minister at these churches. To hear from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself, his own uh, review of their state. And, and to have an end, you know, in Laodicea. That lukewarm, you know, Jesus said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. If he hadn't been prepared with that vision of Jesus, I think he would have been permanently dep depressed. You know? But the Lord Jesus prepared him with a vision of himself so he could be, so he could stand it, I guess, so he could take it. But now, as you know, uh, we're about to get into the, all that prophecy stuff as we've been talking about, which is really a vision of the end of the world going to begin really uh, specifically in chapter 6. And so God uh, takes two chapters here to literally take John up to heaven. And he, forget, forget the earth. The earth is left behind for the moment. And John just gets a uh, full 2020 vision of God on his throne. And it's not a coincidence, you see. God is preparing his man for uh, the bad news in the sense that he's about to come. He's about to come. Now, uh, before you get depressed and discouraged here, hearing this bad news, let, let, let's stand back and take the grand view of history here, God's point of view, 
and remind ourselves of what's going on. If John had known even uh, more than he knew about these, these seven letters that he just had dictated to him, he might have even been more discouraged because, as we, as we see now, it's really a picture of the history of the church. Beginning with Ephesus, the early church, through Smyrna, the persecuted church, up through Laodicea, the church in the last days, which right now we are living in. As we look, this is the professing church now. The, the ones who say they're Christians. Today, the earth is full of those who say they're Christians and are not. And Jesus wants to spew them out of his mouth. We're at the end of the church era, right now as we speak. And uh, in one sense, this experiment, now be careful when you hear this, when I say this, but you'll understand it, has been a failure. It's been a failure in the sense that mankind has failed God. They failed the test. You understand? We failed every test. And if, you, if we get out of outside, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and get into the Bible to look at the overview of history, we see God's dealings with man. It's one test, if you will, after another, in ideal conditions, and every single time, man fails. God is successful. He never fails, okay? But if you begin in the Garden of Eden, you couldn't find a more perfect setting, could you? Boy, God prepared uh, Eden and the whole earth so beautifully. And then when it was all prepared, and not until then, he dropped in that, that couple, you know, in the most ideal environment. What happened? They, 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 they turned their back on him. In essence, they called God a liar. Remember that? They failed. Uh, we went outside of there and God uh, applied human government. And that didn't work. We ended in the flood. An act of judgment. It got to the point to where the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, he said. Wow. That one failed. Then he, he said, okay, well, let's take a little, let's take a little test tube case, a little sample. Well, the nation of Israel. Let's set them aside as my special people and I'm going to give them my law. I'm going to reveal myself to them. Give them... Uh, the, the uh, outline of the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the ordinances associated with it, and they're going to be my special people. I'm going to be their God. You would think, now this is going to work. Right? Let's quote, quote them. All that the Lord has said, we will do. Right? Well, you know what happened. And they failed. Now, God isn't surprised at these things. You understand? He's not finding out something here. He knew this before the world was created. But he's demonstrating something. He's demonstrating two things. He's demonstrating us and our own frailty and sinfulness and innate rebelliousness against him and his own faithfulness and patience and kindness and love over and over again. And we could go through the other periods of, of uh, God's dealings with man. And, of course, the one we're coming to the end of now is, is sometimes called the Age of Grace, where God... Um, has given the full revelation of his word. His son has come. We know what that was all about. We didn't before he came. It wasn't just uh, someone who came as, as uh, the Jewish Messiah, but it was his own son. God the son, the second person of the Godhead, became a man and died on the cross of Calvary uh, in Jerusalem for my sin and your sin. A much greater work than anybody ever anticipated. And he's calling a part of people to himself who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. We have a natural heart for him because he's made it so. And yet, in the midst of this, uh, there is this unnatural growth, the professing church, which is incredibly huge today, a false growth. And this experiment, so to speak, is about to end in failure in that sense. And, boy, I'll tell you, we're very near the day when he's going to take out that little remnant of true believers out of the professing church He's going to leave behind this huge mass of people who say they're Christians and aren't, and they're going to be left behind to join this great world church that we're going to see here in the book of Revelation. And he's going to have a special judgment reserved for this false, uh, outward, profession-only religion called Babylon the Great, with two chapters devoted to it. So, there's the overview, you see. But, so they're failures in the sense that we're failures. But God isn't. He never fails. I'll tell you, there's not one good word of the Lord that has ever failed. Joshua said that, and it's still true. And so, to prepare John and us for what God is about to reveal, he begins not with the details of the, of the judgment itself, 
but with a revelation of himself. I, uh, I love the choice of the hymns this morning. I, I like it how the Lord works out hymns that tie in with the message. And of course, the second one was very appropriate because holy, 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 that song is taken from chapter 4 of Revelation, as you probably know. But the first one, uh, like a river glorious, I love this thing. It says, Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. And that's really a good theme for what we're talking about today. Stayed upon Jehovah as we focus our hearts and our thoughts upon him in who he is. We have perfect peace and rest. Uh, like this, hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry. Touch the Spirit there. Stayed upon Jehovah. Okay, so let's join John the Apostle now as God literally carries him up to heaven in this uh, great revelation of chapter 4. Verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. You know, if uh, you've studied the Bible enough, you, you've learned by now that small phrases mean a lot in the Bible, don't they? God doesn't waste words. And uh, there are a few phrases I'd like to go after here in this first verse because they fit in with our overall outline of the book. And it's the first words, after these things, and the last words, come up here and I will show you things which might, must take place after this. You say, well, those are pretty ordinary words. I mean, what kind of significance can those have? Well, there's a tie-in here if you really... Look closely at the book of Revelation. You'll see, we've mentioned it before, there's a three-point outline back here in chapter 1. Just flip back there for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 19. Remember this? Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Remember that? And really, that's a good summary, a good outline of the book of Revelation. The things that he had seen, chapter 1, that revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. That's, what, that, that's the things that he had seen up to that point. That, that's kind of a standalone chapter. Then he says the things which are, and he's about to learn the things that, that are. That's chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, which actually existed at that time in the life of John. He knew these churches. Of course, little did he know, as, as often God, when he speaks in, in revelatory form, there was more in the message than just the letters to seven churches, but an outline, really, of church history. So that's the things that are, really, up until the end of the church age. And then finally, the things that shall be after this. After what? Well, after the seven churches. And symbolically, after the church age. Okay, And in fact, he begins chapter 4 by saying, after these things I looked and behold a door standing, and uh, says, come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. What's after this? Well, the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And of course, the things that are going to take place is the tribulation, the last seven years of planet Earth. And... If you know where I'm going with this, that to me, that's another evidence of the pre-tribulation rapture, you see. The things that take place after this. The judgment, the tribulation, the judgment of God upon the earth is going to take place after the churches. After the letters to the churches, after the church age in uh, chapters 2 and 3. In fact, really, uh, there are at least seven nice uh, proofs, if you will, of the fact that the church is going to be gone and raptured up to heaven right here in this short section. That's, that's one of them. Uh, the other one, uh, well, we, actually, we kind of refer to it here. Let's take them in order. Number one, the church. That word ap appears. I should have counted it in the uh, concordance, but it's all over the place in chapters 2 and 3. The word church. 
and ending with Laodicea, the word disappears until chapter 22. It's interesting. So during the tribulation, that word is gone. Secondly, this idea of, of this outline after these things that I just referred to. When, he's, when, he, when the Lord turns to the judgment, the tribulation, he says, after these things, the tribulation is going to come. After what things? Well, the church age. Um, third, I love this little phrase here. Little phrases are significant. When uh, the Lord addresses John here in verse 1, and of course John is a believer, part of the church, he, he, he sees a door open in heaven and he's told, come up here. Isn't that interesting? Now, you may not be overwhelmed by any one of these, but taken together, you know, they really, to me, uh, are very weighty. The four, we're going to see this as we get into the chapter. The fourth one, there are 24 thrones here in this vision. The thrones are in heaven. And on the thrones are elders. A picture, of course, representative of the church. Now, it's significant that there are 24 thrones and not five elders. You understand? Not uh, 24 thrones and 23 elders. They're all there. The places are filled. Okay? So here's a picture of the church in heaven represented by the elders, and they're all there. Fifthly, the elders are crowned. That's significant. In other words, the judgment seat of Christ has already taken place. The rewards have been given. Here is the church in heaven with the rewards already having been given out. Uh, six, I said we, we have uh, the pattern of a revelation of God and then prophecy, judgment, revelations of judgment, bad things, right? That happens twice in the book of Revelation. The first vision, this is interesting, the first vision of the Lord Jesus given to John was on the island of Patmos. And he wasn't, it wasn't a vision of heaven, I don't know if you noticed that. John just says, I heard a voice behind me, and he saw. And there, on the earth, was the Lord Jesus in the midst of his churches. And, or, but to put it better, there was the church on the earth around the Lord Jesus, represented by the seven golden uh, candlesticks. You remember that? So there's the uh, church on the earth with the Lord Jesus in the center. The second vision given after the church age and before the tribulation, is in heaven. With the Lord Jesus in the center, in the throne, surrounded by the 24 elders in heaven. Isn't that interesting? So you begin the first vision, the church on earth, with the Lord Jesus in the center. The second vision, before the tribulation, is the Lord Jesus in the center, with the church symbolically surrounding him again. Okay? Now, I don't know how many of you might have noticed before, there are a lot more in the book of Revelation than throughout the book for the discerning eye, for the, for the student of the Word of God. And they're all over the Scripture as well. As well as clear passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and others. Okay. Make a note. So, that, oh, Did I say the uh, seventh? Of course, the seventh is uh, coupled with the fact that the, the word church doesn't occur now for until chapter 22, all of a sudden, unlike the epistles, where the church, of course, is the predominant entity in the, in the central place in the dealings of God, we're back to Israel again. The nation of Israel is the predominant people in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. Isn't that interesting? And if uh, we'll get into that more now. We're gonna, next week, we're going to have to take a, a break from the book of Revelation because I know this is a, a new to a lot of you. And so we're going to uh, develop for ourselves a framework upon which to uh, understand the prophecies in the book of Revelation. We're going to take a look at the book of Daniel primarily in other places. You're, some of you are familiar with this, but I know a lot of you aren't. So um, if you're still not convinced, come back next week and we'll see if we can't uh, convince you even more. Okay, there's our half-hour introduction. Now let's get into the chapter. Let me just say that... Um, as I said, this is like the other chapters where God prepared his prophets for heavy things, you know, terrible things. As we read this, you're going to see the language is very much like Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah 6. A lot of similarities. And they should be because those were also 
visions of God that he gave to his prophets. There's much symbolism. Be careful now. Uh, whenever you see that word like, okay, his appearance was like a sardius stone. Well, don't picture a sardius stone sitting in the throne. It says his appearance was like. He, he can't describe it in perfect words. So all he can say is it's like a sardius stone. Okay? Remember, uh, constantly when God gives visions, he's revealing spiritual things. These are not physical things like your body, so to speak. These are spiritual visions. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so God, uh, when he reveals to his prophets himself and heaven and so on, uh, he, he, there is symbolism everywhere. Okay. Verses 2 and 3. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Okay, I love this. Um, what does John need to see? He, need, he saw what we need to see. He saw heaven open, and the first thing he sees is a throne and him who sat on it. Isn't that great? That, that speaks volumes right there. A heaven with the throne and the Lord sitting on the throne in control. A picture of the majesty and the sovereignty of God overall. That's the first thing he sees. No perturbation here, no hurry. The earth is not even intruding on this scene. There are passages like this in the Old Testament that give the same picture of undisturbed majesty and sovereignty while the earth is a, like a boiling sea of tumult and, and uh, trouble. Look at Psalm 2 real quick. That's a good uh, parallel passage with this picture of God on His throne in spite of what's going on in this boiling sea around us. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage... You got that? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And uh, I have in my margin here, that, that's a real picturesque word, apparently, in the original. Uh, it says, throng tumultuously. It's a picture of chaos and running here and there. And the people plot a vain thing. Here's the picture on earth, you see. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now we, we move from this scene of trouble and, and uh, plotting and warring and, and uh, vengeance and, and, and fighting against the Lord to heaven. And here it is again. A throne with someone sitting on it. This word sits, by the way, occurs, and it's a significant word, over and over in these visions of God who is in control. He's not up, you know, pacing nervously. You understand? You know, he's not fretting, he's not worrying. He sits <laughs> in the heavens on his throne. Okay? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them. He's not even going to get up. He's just going to speak. Isn't that good? He's not going to have to stand up to do anything. He's just going to sit there and he's going to speak. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And here's the bottom line. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Isn't that good? He's sitting again. The Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what is said and done on the earth, it makes no difference. The Lord Jesus Christ is and will be on his throne forever and ever. A great contrast there between the, the boiling pot, the seething humanity, and the Lord on His throne. Back to uh, Revelation 4. There's another great passage. I'll just quote this one for you. It's in Isaiah 40. You've heard this many times. Have you not known? The Lord is speaking here. Have you not heard? Has, he not, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and I like this, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He's talking about infinity, 
He stretches it out like a tent, it says, to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. I love that picture of his, how he's, to us, you know, this, the heaven does look like a tent or a dome, doesn't it? Of course it's not. It goes on, I'll say, infinitely in all directions. We don't know how far. Every time the astronomers think they've seen the end of it, they focus in, you know, get a clear picture, and whoops, it's just as far as they, uh, you know, the things are just as big and numerous as they were close up. But this picture, it says, uh, he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. You, you ever go out sometime, you know, Tom, out in the big sky of Mo- Montana, and look up horizon to horizon and see that tent that God just stretched out? When I read this, I thought of uh, when I was a boy, we used to go camping uh, in the redwoods, back in the days when it was safe to sleep in a tent. And uh, we had one of these old, I don't know if But it was square, and um, the way you did it, it had a pole in the middle, and then it had four metal prongs that went off to the sides to hold up the four corners. So it was shaped like that. You got it? You with me? And I remember uh, my dad, when I got older, he'd let me set it up, and I loved it so much. I loved the smell of that tent. It was canvas. And when we'd first get it down out of the garage, that smell, canvas, immediately I'd get visions of the redwoods, you know? It was, it was a wonderful thing to me. And when we got there and we got older, we'd stake down the four corners. And then, I mean, this thing's flat, laying on the ground, a square. And it looks like nothing. And I'd crawl in underneath the canvas to what would be inside, to that middle hole that holds the pole up. Go in there with the pole and pick it up. And it was so neat. I mean, you're, you're surrounded by this canvas. It's a tight spot. And you reach down and you grab the metal prongs and you slide them up. You hook them into the holes and push it up. And you spread out this tent. It's so neat. It, it starts off with this confining space and it spreads out. And all of a sudden, when you get the metal prongs up, you're in this big room. Really neat. And that's, whenever I read this, that's what I think of. God spreading out the heavens. Can you imagine that? Like a tent. The idea being that it's no big thing to him. As I uh, thought of this, this glorious picture of the Lord in his majesty and on his throne... You've heard me uh, refer to this before, but we, we sing a hymn. We usually sing it in at Breaking of Bread, but there's a phrase in it that I love. It's a picture of that the, that the hymn writer got when he worships the Lord, and particularly comes to Breaking of Bread, and he focuses on Him and His greatness on His throne. It's like all of a sudden, he, earth is shut out. And, he, and I, I, it's like He's in heaven. You ever had that experience? Isn't it like that for you? They're breaking our bread. You know, it's like the earth is left behind. And for a little bit, we're, we're, we're transported up to heaven. And the way the hymn writer put it, he says, Shut in with thee, far, far above, the restless world that wars below. You got that picture? I didn't like that. Shut in with thee. It's like we're in heaven with the Lord, the doors are closed, and way down there somewhere is the restless world that's warring. Well, that's the picture here in Revelation. And, and that's not just wishful thinking. That's the way it is right now. Okay? As we speak, the Lord is on the throne. <clears throat> okay. Uh, now, he refers to a couple of stones here. These are often used in the Scripture. Precious stones. Here it's jasper and sardius. I think some of you say sardine stone. And uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation as to the significance of these things. Read a commentary. And depending on which one you find, it'll be a different opinion. It's not clear. They're reddish stones. We know that. Uh, These stones appear in the breastplate of Aaron, the high priest. They appear in the foundation of uh, the New Jerusalem. They appear in lots of places in Scripture. So, to be honest, it's not really clear. I think really what John was after here was the colors. He he knew well the intensity and the reds were different than these stones. And all I can say is the one who was on the throne was an appearance like Remember those big words, okay? A sardius stone and a jasper stone. That's not a lot to go on. You see, but I think that's significant. He's not going to have a, pardon the big word, an anthropomorphic picture of God. In other words, God's not going to appear as a man because he's not a man. You see? In fact, how is he going to? God is spirit. And so there's not going to be a detailed picture of his features here or anything. 
It's left to the imagination. John saw something, and I'll promise you it was, it was awesome and impressive. But the best we can get is the one that he saw was an appearance like a jasper and a sardius stone. We, we've seen other pictures of the Lord Jesus, who, by the grace of God, became a man. But uh, here, he's, he's picturing God on his throne, and so that's the closest we come. Okay, but there is something here that we want to t- uh, take note of, and that's the second thing. <clears throat> it says there was a rainbow around the throne, an appearance like an emerald. Well, you scientists are immediately going to, you know, chime up. Oh, how could it be there a rainbow? You have to have rain to have a rainbow. Okay, first of all, the word in the Greek is not rainbow. Well, that's the best word we can use. It's a, it's a bow in the sky, in the air. It's literally a halo around the throne, okay? The word is, is iris in the Greek. You know, what, you know your eye? You know what the iris is? If you could look in the mirror, if you look at somebody next to you, you got that little black thing in the middle. That's the pupil. That's where the, the light goes in. Around that, that colored part that makes you either blue-eyed or brown-eyed or green-eyed or whatever, that little circle of color is the iris. You know that? That's the word here. Okay, so the word is not rainbow. The word is literally iris, but it's, it's uh, taken to be, in the original, uh, like a rainbow or a halo, uh, a circle of colors and light. Okay? And here, of course, uh, it's emerald in color. And this is significant, because where else do we, we learn about a bow set in the air? Of course, it's after the flood. And I'd love to take time this morning and explain to you why there wasn't a rainbow until then. It's fairly simple to explain because uh, there wasn't rain on the earth before that time. God says that in Genesis chapter 2. The point we want to bring out, though, is that the rainbow is the sign that God gave after a judgment where he promised he would not do it like that again. And so it's, it's a, a symbol, really, of God's mercy and faithfulness in judgment. He said, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And he says, to, to uh, make a covenant or as a sign of my covenant, I love the phrase that says in the Old King James, Behold, I have set my bow in the clouds. And it, it's neat. He says, I have set my bow. It's his. And isn't that wonderful, by the way? If you think of all the things in nature, is there anything else like a rainbow? Isn't that unusual? Imagine looking up in the sky and here's this circle of red, orange, Yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, right in the middle of the sky. Isn't that great? Now, we could get into the refraction of water and, and the dispersion of the colors as it goes to the raindrop. Forget all that business. Yes, that's, that's how it works. But I tell you, it's so unusual. God put it there, and it's still there, not um, you know, as an evidence of the physical properties of light and water, but as a, as a confirmation of God enacting a judgment. Isn't it, isn't it significant that here we see it around the throne where judgment is about to take place? It's like a reminder here to all who see it and God himself that although he's about to first judge the earth and then later destroy it, it will not be with a flood because he said he would never do that again. Isn't that neat? This little reminder, you see, of the faithfulness of God. Okay, and here we're going to meet the uh, 24 elders that I mentioned to. I mentioned earlier, around the throne, verse 4, were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Okay, let's uh, pause there. As I said, if you remember now, of the first vision that John had, the church was on the earth, around the Lord Jesus, in the form of lampstands. Here the church is now in heaven, symbolically by elders around the Lord Jesus. Notice the thrones were around his throne. And uh, two things are mentioned about them. They're clothed in white robes. Boy, we could speak sermons about that, huh? The righteousness of Christ. As, as they're wearing these white robes, you know, and as you wear your white robe, if, if you know the Lord Jesus, you know, you're going to be in heaven with him with a robe of white. And you're going to be able to look at that and say, you know, Jesus made this for me on the cross. And this is, this is why I can be here. I have his righteousness. And so that's their title to being there, so to speak. They're white robes. 
And of course, the crowns of gold. One thing you might want to know here, <clears throat> the word for crown here is stephanos, not diadem. Remember, there are two crowns. I think most of you have heard this. Two words for crown in the Greek. Diadem is a crown of a ruler, a governor. Stephanos, which is the word here, is a crown of victory, like the crown they give, gave to the Olympic athletes, you know, back in the Greek times. So these are crowns of victory that they're wearing. They're rewards that, they, that have been given to them by the Lord Jesus himself. <clears throat> uh, in the verse uh, 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. <clears throat> okay, uh, and again, these are words, but if you can imagine what it must have been like to see, it would have it been awesome, to use a contemporary word, if you had seen this. The words fail to communicate the greatness and the impressiveness that would have overwhelmed John and you if you were to really see what he saw here. But imagine from this throne, it says, lightnings and thunderings were proceeding from it. Of course, from the one who sat there, obviously. And voices. And these, are, again, are pictures of God and his sovereignty and acting in judgment. The lightnings and thunderings, of course, act, acts of judgment, and the voices commands, all emanating from God. And of course, uh, in heaven, his words, words aren't questioned. And so you can just imagine the, the uh, angelic beings, not little guys with fluttery wings, remember, but these are great spiritual beings responding as God speaks and they obey. God and his sovereignty on his throne. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit, of course, is pictured here. We've already seen the sevenfold picture of uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is not seven different spirits. It's a picture. Seven, remember, is the number of completeness. And uh, here, it's a picture of seven lamps of fire. Fire, again, a picture of judgment. But I think, in general, the, the Holy Spirit being pictured here by seven lamps of fire is, is showing His work of penetrating, exposing, judging, purifying. His, his work of doing those things. It's wonderful to compare this with the seven-branched candlestick in the tabernacle. Many of you remember, we've gone through that a couple of times. All, remember all the symbolism of the tabernacle? It's all pictures of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Remember that? And just for a moment, place yourself in the tabernacle, that beautiful place with uh, acacia wood covered with gold. The walls are gold. And above is that beautiful linen tapestry interwoven with uh, red and uh, purple and um, gold. What a beautiful picture. And it's the only source of light is that seven-armed, golden candelabra, candlestick. So what a, what a glow it must have cast, you know, a permitted. The point is, you see, you, you can see the beauties of Christ. If, get the tape if you, if you want to know. But there's beautiful pictures of Christ in the tabernacle. And it's all revealed, you see, by that light. The Holy Spirit revealing the beauties and the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, then we're introduced to the four living creatures. We're going to see these uh, individuals later in chapter 6. Each one is going to speak um, when each of the first four seals are opened. <coughs> so hang on to your seat because you've never seen anybody like these guys before. Verse uh, 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. Some of your words may say uh, beasts. Forget that. And the word is really living ones, four living ones, beings. Um, <clears throat> in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. Notice the word like again. It wasn't a lion and it wasn't a calf. John's fishing for something in our experience that we can relate to, Okay. So this is the closest that he could come. Like a lion, like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Okay, four living creatures close to God. Um, you've never met anybody like this, I'll promise you. Okay? And uh, no matter how you envision, it's going to look weird. So just forget your imagination. You, you can't imagine what it would have been like really to see these, these beings. But they're close to God. They're so close to God. They're very similar to the ones that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 and that Ezekiel saw in the first chapter of uh, his book. <coughs> there are four of them. They have eyes all around. Now, we can speculate that some of the characteristics of these beings tie in with the characteristics of God himself because they're so close to him. They're not God, you see, but they, uh, so to speak, represent or, or symbolize things about God. For example, if you notice, it says not only were they around the throne, but they were in the midst of the throne. That's interesting. And the eyes before and behind and, and everywhere uh, may well be a picture of the all-seeing God. Wonderful uh, passage in Hebrews 4. Uh, says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's God. Uh, the four beings here, the lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle. You've been here enough, many of you. you should remember that fourfold picture. The picture of whom? That's right, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same symbology in Ezekiel. And uh, the best place to tie it in is with the four Gospels. Each one, why do we have four Gospels? Why don't we just have one? Well, you see, God in presenting his son to us couldn't just do it in one. And he, That's right, he presents them four different ways. And these four animals correspond to the four different ways. There are four colors that go with each one. Real quick, <clears throat> Matthew is which animal? What is it? Lion, that's right. And the role of the Lord Jesus, or the characteristic of the Lord Jesus there, is king. Uh, Matthew, Mark, the animal would be? Yeah, that's right. The picture is a servant, and the animal is the calf, or the ox, as it is in um, Ezekiel. That's right, the servant. Isn't that amazing? Our Savior, a king and a servant. And he's the greatest king that ever was and ever will be, and he's the greatest servant that ever was or will be. Isn't it? That's wonderful. King and servant. Two great... You see, you can't, you can't put all that in one book. So God has Matthew and Mark. Luke, which, which a creature? The man, that's right. The perfect man. The Gospel of Luke. And finally, John. Well, there's one left. That's right. Very good, the eagle. Yeah, the flying eagle. And of course, a picture of his deity. And again, a pair, so to speak. The perfect man, boy, I guess so. He created us. He ought to know, huh? And he doesn't have to try. He is the perfect man. Loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of the day. And yet, God. God and man. One person, and yet God and man. So, here we have a... In fact, it's neat. We have the Trinity here. First, we had the God the Father... And then the Holy Spirit, and now God the Son, in the throne, on the throne. One God, three persons. And uh, these, these creatures now, you, you may think, oh boy, these guys are bored, huh? All they do all day and all night is say the same thing over and over again. Boy, you couldn't be more wrong. I'll tell you, these creatures would not trade places with anybody in the universe. Did you know that? Uh, they are... So close to God. And the, this is not a mantra that they're saying here. They're not just repeating meaningful words. Realize, they're saying from their heart what they understand and realize that God is thrice holy. And in fact, as the ages roll on, moment by moment, they, God is revealing to them just what it means that He is holy, holy, holy. And just what they saw, thought they saw at the end of it, there's something more that He reveals to them. This is, uh, to use another word in the scripture, paradise. They were created for this, and they're realizing what they were created for. This is what you were created for. Did you know that? To know him, to understand him, and to appreciate and worship him. That's why you were made. You may not feel like it because of what sin has done to you, but if you've been saved and you've known God just for at least a little while, you're beginning to understand what that really means, that you're where you were meant to be all along. Well, not yet. When you're with him, and 
and enjoying this, then you really will be. And it's significant now, uh, these words, thrice holy, first of all, not just once, but three times. Certainly uh, significant in the three persons of the Godhead, but also emphasizing God's holiness. But this last phrase, now, you, you may be underwhelmed by this. Who was and is and who is to come. You read that and you say, what's so great about that? I mean, I was, and I am, and Lord willing, I am to come. You know, what's the big deal here? Well, you don't understand. You see, these are saying that God is these things all at the same time. You understand? God was right now. God is right now, and He is to come right now. This is one of the greatest things about God. He doesn't have to wait for tomorrow to come here to find out or experience it. He's there. Can you understand that? I can't. I'm not God. And I've quoted it so many times. John chapter 8, Jesus said it so perfectly, stretching grammar to its limits, when He said... Before Abraham was, I am. You got that? Before Abraham was, way back then, I am. Now, we can't relate to this because we're not God. We exist in one point in space and in one point in time. Let me illustrate with uh, what Einstein would call a Gedanken experiment. That's a weird word, isn't it? German. Gedanken, it sounds like you just threw a rock into a pond or something. Gedanken, you know. But it literally means a thinking or a thought experiment. Einstein was great at this. He would, he would come up with these experiments where you didn't have to use one test tube, one, one beaker, you know, one piece of hardware. You just sit there and think. In fact, he had some marvelous insights into this incredibly complex subject of relativity with a little Gedanken experiment about an elevator. But we're not going to do that. We're going to do, a, do another Gedanken experiment just to sh- kind of illustrate this for you. I'm a created being. I'm finite. I exist in one place and in one moment of time. Let me illustrate. Right now, I'm here. Now. Okay? Now, in a, in a few seconds, Lord willing, I'm going to be over there. And it's going to be then. Okay? Now, the point is, God is here right now, but he's also, when I was speaking a while ago, he's there. Now, I'm going to do what I said, okay? Now, I'm not over there anymore. I'm over here, and and it's a different time, and I can't experience that again. It's gone. It's vanished. Poof. I'm constrained by being right here and right now, and I can't be anyplace else, and I can't be at any other time as much as science uh, fiction writers would like to tell you. Okay? Now, God isn't like either one of those. He's not constrained by either one of those limitations. First of all, He's everywhere. And let's not get this all-pervasive, you know, kind of force-type thing. He's very real, very intimately related to being everywhere. What I mean is, for example, Acts says, it's in, in Him that we live and move and have our being. He's holding you together. He's giving you every breath. He's giving you life itself, moment by moment. He's that intimate. And if you know Him personally through His Son, Jesus Christ, He indwells you in a personal way. But if you could picture the farthest star in the farthest galaxy, He is there right now. And the thermonuclear reactions that are taking place in the center all the way out to the farthest edge He is personally sustaining every one of them, moment by moment. It's not that he just kind of turned it loose and it's running on itself. Can you understand that? Our God is so great. And he's not only, right now in this moment, he's doing that, but he's he's doing it five seconds ago. He's doing it when Abraham looked up at the stars and God said, see if you can count the stars. He's doing it, well, I don't know how soon Jesus is going to come, let's say a week from now. Okay? And he's in heaven right now being worshipped like this. These, these four creatures are, are worshipping him right now. He's everywhere in an end and every time. Now, this really bothers a lot of people, you know. They say, I can't comprehend that. And so they, they say, well, God can't be like that because I can't understand it. Can you think of something stupider to say than that? 
God can't be like that because A, it bothers me, or B, I can't understand it. Therefore, it can't be true. Man. I mean, that's, that's like an ant saying, you know, those people can't be like that. You know. Yes, God is who he is, whether you like it or not. He's great. He's, he's inconceivable. And not just in his uh, expanse as far as uh, greatness and power, but in his person, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy, his justice, and so on. Great verse uh, talking about that. It says about the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Because of this, by the way, because God is now and he is tomorrow and he is yesterday, he's the same. He doesn't change. He can't change. You know what change is associated with? Time. We change because we pass through time. And we're not the same now as we will be later or as we were before. We're subject to the constraints of time. God isn't. And so he doesn't change, you see. He is, period. And it says about the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, and I love it, he always throws us for a loop. When we think we're, we know what he's about to say, we would say, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What is, Jesus, what is it Jesus saying in his word? Jesus Christ is saying, yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Isn't that good? Praise God. God on his throne. Okay, well, we'll finish up here. Uh, this theme, this idea, you see, they're, they're overwhelmed by their understanding and a greater idea than you and I what this means, who was and is and is to come. And it makes them overflow with praise and worship. As they understand this. And that theme continues in a phrase that appears several times in 9 through 11. And the phrase is, who lives forever and ever. That's the same idea. Not just that he goes on forever, but he lives at all times. Whenever the living creatures, verse 9, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. There it is again. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying... You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Okay, the uh, 24 elders get to join in in the praise here. And uh, just to finish up here, this is a, to me this is a very fitting act. To be honest, when I, when I first read this chapter... And it, it has God on his throne. And then there are these 24 thrones with these elders sitting on it with crowns. It kind of bothers me. Doesn't it kind of bother you? What are they doing sitting on these thrones in the presence of God? You know? And it's great because they do what is only right in the situation. They get up out of their thrones. And they fall down at the feet of the only one who should be on any throne, any place. And they take off those crowns. They don't even leave the crowns on their heads. They take them off and they cast them at the foot of the throne. Isn't that good? Man, that's great. We should do that symbolically in our lives. You know? Get down off that throne. Take that crown off your head. Get down on your face at the feet of Jesus. Give Him all the glory. Look at Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. Serve Him. Love Him. He's the center. He, and as we're going to see here in the next chapter, he's the only one who is worthy. And that's, in fact, what they say. When they say, you are worthy, O Lord, they're not saying, among many, you are worthy. The emphasis here, particularly the original, is you alone. There's nobody else. None of me, none of us, none of creation. They were all created by you. <laughs> they owe their very existence, their day-to-day -day existence to you. You are everything. You are worthy of all things. Here's a great way to overcome discouragement and depression. Fall at the feet of Jesus on the throne where He is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to join in as much as we can with our feet on the earth but our eyes in heaven and see You there on the throne because You are we thank you, Lord, that you do sit on the throne above the circle of the earth and you are waiting for that time. Uh, we think of how you say in the Gospels that you are uh, near, even at the door. You're coming soon. And Lord, we can hardly wait. But we pray 
that, Lord, you might remind us of the need in our own lives to look up, to look at you. When discouragement or depression, fear, worry, anxiety, whatever it is, begins to beset our souls, Lord, remind us to look up, to see you, to see Jesus. Like the Greeks said, we would see Jesus. That's what we want to do, Lord. And we think of that wandering ship that I referred to, Lord, with the anchor in its hull. So many in this world with the anchor inside them, drifting, no hope. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here like that this morning, that they may learn what it's like to know you. Think of the marvelous description in the book of Hebrews that says that we have an anchor. It goes through the veil. It's not penetrating this earth. It's not sunk in this earth, but it goes in, its, in heaven itself. Our anchor is cast there where we're waiting for a Savior to come for us. We thank you, Lord, for this marvelous revelation of yourself. And that's what we want to be our focus this day and until you come. And we say it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.